Good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to be back here at Ananda Village, see all your smiling faces, be here at the Temple of Light. My name is Atman, this is Bhakti Marg. We've served here at Ananda Village for the past uh, three decades or so, but we have just been on pilgrimage in various places and have just returned within the last, uh, I guess it's been <laughs> a couple days. So if, uh, if the mind wanders a bit, it's because I'm still not quite here. But um, let's start with uh, some whispers from eternity, and then we'll talk about today's subject. It's from Paramahansa Yogananda's Prayer Demands, Whispers from Eternity. It says, make me the butterfly of eternity. I have burnt my past destroying every seed of evil destiny. I have stridden bravely through the strewn ashes of my past and future fears. I am the eternal now, having torn to shreds my enclosing cocoon of ignorance with the sharp knife of free will. Now I am thy soaring butterfly of eternity, flitting freely through immeasurable skies of time. The beauty of my wings I spread out through nature everywhere to entertain all beings. My wings are sprinkled with suns and stardust. Lo, I am beautiful. May every silken thread that shrouded my past folly be severed forever. See, they trail now behind me, only adding to my beauty as I wing my way to my own self in thee. So the, it's interesting, the subject of reincarnation, because it's something that has been on my mind in these last few weeks of, of pilgrimage. And I'll explain a little bit why and how that all fits together and what I've learned about uh, reincarnation and how that can help us. So we started our trip in Spain. We were supposed to be going to the Holy Land on pilgrimage, but Fortunately, through divine intervention, uh, Lalan and Sitabai canceled the pilgrimage back in May rather than in October when things blew up over there. So since I was, people were not expecting me to be here, we decided to go elsewhere during this time. So Indrani, who leads the meditation center in Spain, had organized a retreat with Anand and Kirtani coming, a Kriya initiation, and Bhakti Marg had worked with many, many of the students in Spain online, but had never met them in person. So we started our pilgrimage in Spain with a retreat for Spanish devotees. And the interesting thing was that the retreat was held in Avila, which is a old medieval town north of Madrid. It was founded in the Middle Ages as a fortified city and outpost to keep the Moors at bay who were moving through the Iberian Peninsula to keep them from moving farther. So the city is still there, the walls are still there. It's a beautiful city. It's made famous though, however, by a, the personage of a great saint, Teresa of Avila. And we were able to visit some of her places where she blessed, where she lived, the convent that she lived in. And the whole city is really blessed with her presence. And it's interesting for us, because Teresa of Avila, Master said, was reincarnated as Gyanamata, which was Master's foremost woman disciple 
who he said attained uh, enlightenment in this, in this lifetime, this current lifetime in America. And I think she passed away in, the, in 1950, 51. So it was an interesting connection to have for us for there. And we visited and went to very many, or you know, there were a number of very interesting holy sites there. There was a place, the stairway, where she had an angel appear to her that pierced her heart with a flaming spear that infused her with the divine ecstasy and a longing, a burning love for God. There was a place where she was speaking to, uh, when she first joined the, the convent, there was someone who came in, a young man who was speaking to her. And, you know, she was a young girl still and was enjoying this conversation. And Jesus appeared behind this man and went like this. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is not for you. Your, your connection is with me, your marriage. And so that spot's there. There was also the spot where through her, the power of her own divine realization and force, she was able to stop the invading French troops who had burned down the front part of the convent and were coming into the inner part and coming through this door. And Teresa just stood there and they saw her and they stopped. So it was a, a very holy place. The convent is still active. We were able to go to a Vesper service where the nuns who were there, they're cloistered Carmelite nuns, they were behind a screen, but they were chanting these very beautiful ancient uh, chants that they've sung for probably since the time of Teresa. Teresa was a very strong woman, a reformer. She brought back simplicity in her communion, the contemplative prayer back into the Carmelite order. And she and St. John of the Cross, who was a contemporary who lived in, a, in the area, had a very, very profound impact on the on the evolution of the Carmelite order. And so we'll get to, we'll bring this into reincarnation in a minute here. But <laughs> so we also had the great fortune of visiting Santiago de Compostela. So we went to visit Bhakti Marg's family. Uh, she grew up in Vigo, which is a town in the Northwest of Spain near the Portuguese border, north of it. And Santiago is less than an hour away. So on our way up there, we passed through Santiago de Compostela, which of course has been a pilgrimage spot for thousands of years since the Holy Land in the Middle Ages was cut off from pilgrimage due to the, the invasion of the, uh, and taking over by the Muslims. This became a pilgrimage spot where it's rumored to be the remains of St. James, the apostle. And people came from all over Europe walking there for many, many, many centuries. And then recently, of course, it's become more popular again, the Camino de Santiago, which Sitabai and Satyana recently led a pilgrimage and people will walk there. And it's a, it's a, it's a place that's filled with, with the vibrations of pilgrims. And we were able to go there into the beautiful cathedral and meditate and it was all very nice. So then it was time to go to India and Bhakti Marg headed to the South for some rejuvenation, some Ayurveda and I headed for the Himalayas. So the, the Himalayas have always been something that have really called to me. I've been to India a number of different times and it's where I've always felt the, the greatest connection. So I flew from Bigo to Madrid, to Doha, to Delhi, to Dehradun, all in one go. 
spent the night, then got in a taxi and headed up to, to Caternot. I met David Kletter there, and we, <laughs> we drove the eight hours up to Caternot. So I found myself in the Himalayas, and you know, after a very, you know, quite a, quite a long trip, and as soon as I would sit and go visit a temple or to some place, I would sit and I would feel something that I never felt or that I didn't feel in any of those places, any of those beautiful pilgrimage places, wonderful as they were in Spain. You know, they were good meditations. They were wonderful, peaceful things. But when I sat and closed my eyes in the Himalayas, something else entirely would happen. And, you know, you can have this beautiful romantic image of the solitary yogi up in the Himalayas, just in bliss. And, you know, you have to sort of fill in the color in the picture of that sketch to get an idea of what's really happening. So what's really happening is you're in India. And, <laughs> and India is not a place of quiet and solitude by and large. You can find some places, but Typically, it's a place of very outward and somewhat noisy. And, you know, you go to these beautiful places in Spain and they were clean, they were quiet, it was harmonious, it was this beautiful decorations of art and all very carefully orchestrated. You go to a temple in India and it's not necessarily clean, it's definitely not quiet. And, there's, you know, it has its artistic merits, but there's also parts of it where it's just, it's, let's just say it's a much more inward symbol. It's not so much the outward gathering. I mean, there's always a plastic bag of something that the Pujari's doing and the matches and there's ghee and oil and there's incense ashes and there's, you know, just people milling about. And it's, you know, it's not what, the Ananda would consider as a sort of an inward, quiet, meditative place. However, for me, I would get there and you get past the outward form. And Swami said, India is best experience with your eyes closed. And I would, <laughs> I would certainly agree with that. But, you know, there was just this outward chaos going on. And for example, we were at one place, we went to a, town, a little town called Ukimat, which is the Om Kadeshwar temple is there, which is where they bring the idol from Kedarnat and from Madhya Maheshwar during the winter snows. It's at a lower elevation. So it's a quite small, unassuming temple. And right now it was pilgrimage season still. And so the idols were still up at the high altitudes. And this was a fairly, you know, there wasn't too much happening there, but we ended up uh, spending a, a day there, and we went to the temple. And most Indian temples, morning and evening, have an arati. And the arati is similar to an arati you may have experienced with Ananda, but it's, um, it's what we base our, our version of aratis on. But typically, it's a, it's a time where there's a, the priests will come and chant mantras, there's some chanting, there's the offering of the elements, there's the light, the elements that we have like in our festival of light. So that this happens every morning and evening. So we went to the Ukimat temple for, for Arati and the temples are quite small. There are, you know, maybe you can fit 20 people inside and then there's a 
sanctum sanctorum where the idol is. And so we didn't get there in time. We were sitting outside. So we're just sitting on these stones outside the temple and there's people coming and going and there's people checking their phones and mostly Indians. And we were the only Westerners there. And, and there's a couple kids from the village who are kind of running around the temple, having fun chasing each other. And then the arati starts and it's, um, because the temple is very small, I think they want to share it with everyone. So through these speakers of somewhat questionable quality up on the top of the temple, which could be easily heard for a half a mile, the arati is being broadcast out for the enjoyment of all. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a somewhat chaotic scene. You're just sitting there on the stones. But as soon as I closed my eyes, I just, you know, there was a, there was this welling in my heart. There was just this, this joy, this, this, just this familiarity of just this. And, you know, I started crying. These tears would just come to my eyes. I would just, you know, sort of wash over me these mantras. And every once in a while, you'd, you'd hear a mantra that we knew. That, you know, they, the Gayatri mantra would be in there, or there'd be some song, some chants to Shiva that we had recognized would be part of all this. But mostly it was just this, this vibration, this, the only way I can describe it is just this ancient vibration. And this happened in, you know, frequently to me. And so, you know, the only thing that I can conclude in all this was that there was something in my past that, you know, I didn't get taught this by Kriyananda or on this path. There was something in my past that resonated with what was going on there. And Master said that, you know, there's our past lives plant seeds, our past, especially our past uh, spiritual actions plant seeds in our minds and those seeds will sprout again. And it's the same thing as with pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, you go to sites where there's been uh, holy personages or a focus of devotion or people who have, you know, there's been an energy there for a long time and it sort of opens a window into the divine. You know, that vibration is there, but there has to be that receptivity too. And so, Somehow these things stirred undeniably a receptivity in me and that it would, you know, it would, I, have, I had, things would happen to me that, that hadn't, you know, that don't usually happen. I mean, when, when I'm here and doing Kriya, which I'm very content with, and we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, I'm not about to go to the Himalayas. So. <laughs> but... <coughs> Excuse me, but there was this, you know, there was something, there was something that it was there that was just, you know, opening to it. I mean, sometimes I would have, I'd sit, we were sitting up, uh, you know, we, what we did was we, we basically focused our pilgrimage around this area in the Himalayas between Kedarnath and Badrinath. So this is the, the Garwal Himalaya. It's to the west of Nepal somewhat, and it's just up against the border with Tibet. So there's a region in there and it's the watershed of the, of the Ganges or the Ganga as it's called. And so Kedar is the word for Shiva in the local language. And this is called Kedarkund or the land of Shiva. And so by and large, most of the temples, most of the outward symbols, the things you see were somehow related to Shiva. Badrinath, of course, is related to Narayan, which is Vishnu, and we visited that too. But in this area of Kedarnath, of Kedarkund, 
we went and just visited various sites that we were familiar with or wanted to be familiar with. And we had a car that took us around. We, we rented a car with a driver who, who happened to be Muslim and didn't speak any English. But other than that, it was, <laughs> he got us to where we wanted to go with the help of Google Translate. But, but we would go and visit these various different Shiva temples. And then we would go up to higher places where we could you know, see the Himalayas and feel that vibration of the, the high altitude things. And, you know, just, it would be sort of one, uh, it wasn't deep meditation, but it was just this, this overriding joy and bliss that would just keep coming to me. And then there would be times when I'd close my eyes to meditate and there I would see sort of faces coming through that. And this doesn't usually happen to me. And then it's not like, you know, they're, you know, 3D visions in color. They're just, they're sort of, they're sort of images that it's, you know, behind the closed eyes. And I didn't really know what they were. They were, you know, I would, I would sort of ask and, you know, I'd like to think that we are the yogis of the Himalayas or something, but, <laughs> but you know, that didn't come loud and clear. So some of them looked like that. Some of them were not particularly pleasant. I mean, one of them I thought, oh, maybe this was me, you know, and again, Maybe I was tuning into some kind of past life here that was happening. There were some, that, you know, there were some that looked pretty worried. There was something. I said, "Well, maybe that was me." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, these, you know, these experiences just happened, and I think all I can say is that it was pretty clear that that I've lived in the Himalayas before, and that all these things that are can be a bit foreign on the outside to us were were very, very, very familiar to me and just, you know, very reassuring, which is why I think I was drawn there. I've always been drawn to the mountains. When I was, you know, I was young and growing up, I liked to hike, I'd be out and around. And I grew up on the East Coast and the mountains on the East Coast are fairly small. And it's sort of hard to get a view, like they're usually tree covered. And so you walk all day and then you come to this little cliff and you get this little view out there. And, I remember the first time I, I went to some mountains in New Hampshire, uh, the, the White Mountains, where you get up above treeline. It's a very much an alpine experience. And just that expansion that I felt up there was just, it just really touched me. And it was really familiar. You know, maybe that came from past lives. I and mean, one of the reasons I moved west was because I realized they had bigger mountains out here. And it, and it was easier to get up into that vast, expansive area where there's nothing in front of you and you're just, you're just there with, with the expansion. So we made it up to some very, very beautiful places with uh, which we shared some of the pictures, but just this, you know, this sense of expansion and just, just really, you know, we could, I, I felt I could have stayed there for a long time. So anyway, all right, so what? I had some lives in the Himalayas in the past and it was, there's still something there. So what do you do with that now? So, you know, like, what do you do with reincarnation? Master says, we forget our past lives so that you don't get locked into the habits, the bad habits and the regrets of all your past lives. And that's why they, they go away. So, okay, so is it a good thing to be, you know, sort of tuning back into that? So I was, you know, I was thinking about all this. And I did consider, you know, becoming a wandering sadhu in the Himalayas and saying, well, maybe I should tune back into this more frequently and this would be a good thing. And 
and I quickly realized that the uh, realities of, a, of an aging uh, devotee's body combined with the realities of modern India, I don't think I would make it very far. <laughs> and I also realized that, you know, no, I'm here. I, I've been put here. We have this incredible path of Kriya Yoga that's been given to us. We have these incredible teachings. We have this incredible community of where it's quiet. <laughs> and there are these wonderful vibrations here. I mean, you know, thinking of meditating in the meditation retreat, the Temple of Light, the Moksha Mandir, it's an experience that you don't have in India. The practice of Kriya Yoga and a deep, you know, inward silent meditation, I'll tell you, it's a lot easier here. Devarshi, who I talked to in India, he just said, you know, I've been in India a lot, I've been in a lot of places. There's just no place like Ananda Village. There's just, you know, it's unique. Don't ever take it for granted. So, no, I'm here. I'm here, I'm practicing yoga, Kriya Yoga. This is my Dharma. This is what I want to do and where I am, where God put me. Now, I may, you know, I may go visit there and dip into that some more. But the other thing that came to me about from this, you know, intuitive delving into past lives and the connection was is that, you know, something happens when you, on pilgrimage, something happens when you tune into these things. There's like, things are stirred up inside. And I think those of you who've been on pilgrimage can, can understand this, but it's, you know, there's things that get rearranged and it's hard to put into words, but it's a, I think it's generally positive. It just sort of shakes you a little bit out of your complacency. So that's one thing that was good. The other thing is good is just to tune into to non-attachment and an intuitive perception of some past lives or experiences can help with that. For example, uh, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, one of the yamas, one of the restraints is non-attachment or non-greed. And the perfection of that results in the power of being able to remember your past lives. So the less we become attached to this body, to this life, to this ego, which is the soul identified with the body, the easier it is to you know, remember that we are this ageless, deathless being, the immortal Atman that has gone through many, 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 many incarnations. But I think you can reverse that too. If you start tuning into other incarnations or getting out of this one, that helps perfect non-attachment. So, you know, tuning into these things, I think, can help make, help make me, you know, less attached to this life. I mean, you know, who am I? Here am I, I'm, you know, okay, I'm playing out this role here at Ananda Village and doing this, but there was something else that happened. And, you know, there were probably other thousands, millions of lifetimes that I haven't known about. And so I was, you know, just tuning into that, that, that sense of non-attachment, of not, of not being so focused on right here and now, because when you, you expand and you think about that and you tune into those like, all right, you know, what was all that that was going on? What, what was happening when I was in the Himalayas? Where was I? What was, you know, it's, it's just expands that horizon and gives you that sense of non-attachment to this life, this body, these problems that are happening right now, these issues, you know, it, just, it just helps that, that go a little bit. And it, it, it really helps with a sense of, of timelessness and one of the, I was something this is all I was tuning into during this pilgrimage. We went to Badranath and 
outside of Badrinath, uh, between Badrinath and Mana, is this cave where it was said that Bhrigu meditated. And Bhrigu is a sage that's mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, it was, he was the one who wrote the book of Bhrigu, and Swami wrote about this. He has a whole publication about it. He actually outlined people's lives that were going to live way into the future. And there are these readings of people in this book of Bhrigu that'll tell you things about your life and your past and your future. Swami had one of these readings. He found it very, very salient, very true to what it is. So this is, this is Sage Brigu. So we went up to visit this very unassuming little cave that they've closed in and there's a Swami there. And it's, it's very much off the beaten path, which was nice because it was a place where it was quiet and there weren't very many, there weren't other people. Uh, we actually went with, uh, Saiganesh was leading a pilgrimage, which we happened to coincide with in Badranath. And so we went with up there with them. But we were talking to the Swami up there afterwards and he just kind of casually mentioned, he said, yeah, this is where Brigu meditated. And we said, oh, really? You know, how long was he here? He said, well, you know, legend says that he meditated here for 10,000 years. <laughs> it's like, whoa. You know, that kind of expands your sense of time, what's going on. You know, half the yuga cycle, Brigu was in this cave meditating. And it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. It was a beautiful, beautiful, you know, it's a little cave, but it was a beautiful experience, beautiful vibration. But it, you know, it just gets you thinking a little bit. Also, this, that sense of timelessness came in, tuning into other all the other things that have happened up in this region of the Himalayas. This has been a, a very focused place in, in Hindu mythology and the, in, the, in the writings, the epics, you know, parts of the Ramayana took place here. Of course, the Mahabharata, the Pandavas were all in this area. They went up there seeking out Shiva to get the weapons. They went there to do penance. And this whole thing of these temples that we were looking at, the story about those, they're called the Panch Kedars or the five Kedar temples. And the legend is that after Kurukshetra, after the war of where the Kauravas and the Pandavas uh, fought each other and everybody died and it was the end of Dwapara moving into Kali Yuga, the whole story of the Mahabharata, which the Bhagavad Gita is probably. Anyway, after the war, the Pandavas, among which was Arjuna, who, which was master said he was Arjuna in a previous life. And they went to the Himalayas seeking Shiva to seek his forgiveness for the, and do penance for having killed Brahmins and killed their brothers. And Shiva was not happy with Kurukshetra. And so Shiva hid from the Pandavas and he took the form of Nandi, the bull. And First they went to Varanasi, the Pandavas, and they couldn't find him. So then they went up to the Himalayas seeking this. And Bhima, the second brother, stood up on the top of a mountain and spied this bull and knew that that was Shiva hiding in the form of the bull. So then he went, there's various permutations of the story, but basically he went and they went after the bull and then Shiva either hid or Bhima took the bull and it went into various pieces. But there were five pieces of the bull landed in five different areas and the Pandavas built temples in each of those five different areas. One of which is Kedarnath, which is a very, one of the major pilgrimage spots of, um, of Hinduism. There's four 
major ones up in this region. Kedanat is one of them. That's where the hump landed. And then we went to these other temples, Mad Maheshwar, which is where the, the navel and stomach was, Tungnat, where the arms were, Kalpeshwar, where the hair was. So that's the story of these various uh, temples. But it was the Pandavas who were all there. And one really fabulous experience of this trip was we went up to Kedarnath. And Kedarnath, you have to walk uh, 10 or 12 miles to get up there, and it's a 5,000-foot climb. You end up at just below 12,000 feet. And it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a very, very well-traveled pilgrimage route, and there's a very good trail. It's a stone paved trail. We thought we would be, you know, in the Himalayan solitudes. Well, it was still it was still pilgrimage season. Even though it was getting below freezing at night, it was snowing, it was raining, there were still thousands of people, literally. I mean, they limited supposedly to 13,000 pilgrims a day, but this was the start of Navaratna, and I'm sure there were more than that because there was supposedly this, you're supposed to be registering as you go up there, and this line was about you know half a kilometer long just to register, and David and I kind of looked at each other, and we just kind of went around the line, and. I'm not sure how many other people did that, but there were, anyway, there are thousands of people up there. And to get into the temple, you have to queue up, and then there's this, you get about two seconds through there, you know, you bow, and you're out. And they're just like moving people through. And we got up there, and we saw this huge line, and we're going, oh my God, you know, are we going to stand in this line? And we decided, no, we're not. So we went around the back of the temple, sat down behind the temple, meditated, had a wonderful, you know, feeling up there. We went to the Arati. Again, they had this Arati where there's thousands of people in this square in front of the temple, and they're doing all this. And it went on for quite a long time. And we walked around the side of the temple, and David noticed that there were a couple of armed guards near this one place. And people were, some people would come out, and sometimes people would go in. This was, no one else was going in during the Arati. So he said, I'm oh, here. So we just, we went over there and we're trying to figure out what's going on. Nobody's speaking English. We're just sort of pushing our way in there. And David has this brilliant idea of on Google Translate. He says, we are devotees from California. And he translated that into Hindi. And then he showed it to the guard. And the guard just kind of looked around. Said, okay, okay, wait, wait. So we, we stood there for another, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden he just says, okay, shoes here, go. And so we just like, jumped in the side of the, the temple. And we still have no idea what was going on. But inside this temple, which the front part, it's only about 400 square feet. There are only about 10 or 15 people in there. So we had the chance to actually stand in this temple. And not only that, we stood next to a person who was a local who spoke English. And he started explaining all this. Meanwhile, the RT is still going on in the Sanctum Sanctorum. And, but we're just out there and he said, See all these bas-reliefs? They were like five-foot-high bas-reliefs all the way around. Those are all the Pandavas. There was Krishna. There were the five Pandavas. There was Draupadi. There was, there was Kunti was there. And then the main thing, of course, is Shiva. But we looked up, and we were standing right under Arjuna. We were just sitting there. And, and you know, we, we spent like you know, 10 or 15 minutes in there. And when the RT finished, they let the line in again, and we went through. You know, I even tried to bow, and the guy just said, grab me up, out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, you know, it was, it was a tremendous blessing because, and again, especially tuning in to that timelessness of, 
of Arjuna being there, of our master was there. You know, there have been people worshiping there for, for centuries. And, you know, similarly at Badrinath, the, the idol there looks like Babaji, and it's pretty much considered to be incarnation of Vishnu, which is Krishna, which is Babaji. And, you know, there's just, just this sense of our masters are here. And this is the Badrinarayan area where up at one of the lakes up there is it's said to be, this is, the, this is where Babaji is. And then there was, you know, Nara and Narayana are these two brothers from ancient times. They are the guardians of Badrinath. Well, in the Mahabharata, it says, Narayana is Krishna and Nara was Arjuna. There was our master again. And it said these were the guardians of Badrinath from many, many ages ago. And they meditated up there for a thousand years. So, you know, our master just, he's just there, timelessness. There's also our master might have been Shankara, uh, Adi Shankara. You know, Swami tells the story of in the, autobiography, in the biography of Yogananda. He also had it in conversations about um, Shankara meeting Babaji in Varanasi. And it's, he basically, his Babaji's servant came to, to Shankara for a reading. The Shankara said, your karma is really, really clear. You're going to die tonight. And the servant went back to Babaji and said, this great astrologer says, I'm going to die tonight. And Babaji says, you're not going to die tonight. You're under my protection. He goes back and tells Shankara. Shankara says, look, it's really clear. If you don't die tonight, I will take diksha. I will take initiation with your guru, with your master. And so Babaji protected his servant from this incredible lightning storm. He didn't die. Shankara went and took initiation in Kriya Yoga and took Babaji as his master. So this was a story that Yogananda told Swami. And Swami just sort of speculated, said, well, how, did, how is it that, that Yogananda knew so much about the life of Shankara? I've never seen this story anywhere. I've never seen, you know, maybe he tuned in, but you know, Swami speculated. He said, well, maybe, maybe master was Shankara. And Shankara was so active in this area. This is where he's the one who reestablished the worship at Badrinath. He spent months at a time at Kedarnath. He established the Swami order. He established the Joshimat. The, the far, he established the four, the four monasteries to uphold Advaita Vedanta. All this he did in, you know, in 32 years, but you know, in reincarnation, that could have been master, could have been master taking another role in all this. So it was, um, I'm out of time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it was, uh, I hope I've conveyed some of the enthusiasm, some of the joy I felt doing this, but it's also to just what to take away from this. And for me, I think it's something that uh, Yogananda said in The Essence of Self-Realization. He said, you know, the, the lesson of reincarnation is, is non-attachment. It's going beyond the aversions and attractions of this world of the personality. It's of relating to everyone with kindness, forgiveness, and compassion, and steadfast, steadfastly content in the self, the, the greater self. So it's the lesson of incarnation is to reincarnation is just let all this go. Just, you know, it's out there. You can tune into it intuitively. I mean, rationally, you can't tune into this rationally. I mean, some guy meditating for 10,000 years in one cave. I mean, 
it's not a rational thing. So, you know, intuitively, just, just let all that go. Just all tune into that and just say, okay, I'm just the immortal soul inside. I just have to realize that that flame of the divine, that immortal Atman, that glowing light is there. And all I have to do is let it shine forth, let it burn away all memories, all karmas, all things that I've gathered over the past and just tune into that one inner self. Depths of slumber as I ascend The spiral stairway of wakefulness I will whisper, whisper Break my fast 
of nightly separation from thee. I will taste thee and mentally say, God, God, God. No matter where I go, the spotlight of my mind will ever keep turning on And in the battle pin of activity, my silent war cry will be. storms of trials shriek, and when worries howl at me, I will drown their noises, loudly chanting, Magic cloth will I impose God, God, God. Every night in time of deepest sleep, when my peace dreams and Calls joy, joy. My joy comes singing evermore. Constantly hum, unheard by any.